0: Chapter eight is where we'll start. We'll be reading section um, of the chapter, verse twenty-seven through chapter nine, verse one. I think we'll be able to get through that today. And by way of review, um, you remember last week we excuse me, let me get we um, read a large section from. Really, chapter 24 of verse, or uh, verse 24 of chapter 7, all the way through to chapter 8, verse 26. And that covered a large section. And I'm just going to briefly go through that to reorient ourselves as to where we are. Um, You know, Mark has presented overwhelming evidence to the audience that he's really intended that Jesus is God. It's overwhelming. And it is rapid fire. There's no debate about it. And in this section, he performs a few more miracles that prove that. And um, we notice that each miracle was a little bit different, unique in the way he um, performed them. He first healed the deaf man. Uh, and the ASV reads really nice. It says, and his ears were opened, and the bond of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. So that was a great miracle, Jesus healing that deaf man. Um, and we recognized that there was no parallel account of that miracle in any of the other Gospels. It's unique to Mark's Gospel. And the response was interesting because they were astonished at the miracle. They were like, wow, everyone, everyone was so astonished. Yet, at the same time, they had complete disobedience to Jesus. He said, don't tell anybody. Don't, but the more he told them not to say anything, they proclaimed it all the more. So the point there we made was that admiration for Jesus is not the same as faith. Faith is doing what Jesus says. That's the true mark of faith. And we see that through the apostles, throughout this gospel and the others. They often don't understand things, but in the end, really, they followed Jesus. They did what he said, and that was a mark of their true faith. And so faith requires obedience. We had read Mark chapter 10, verse 28, which we'll get to in a few weeks, and where Jesus decla- or Peter declared, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. There's no one, and then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he'll receive a hundred times now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions. We'll get to that too. That's part of what we'll receive. We'll get blessings and we'll get persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Okay, then. Uh, he performs the miracle of feeding the 4,000 and he felt compassion on these people. They had been with him for three days and he feeds them. The, uh, immediately after he does that, the disciples get into the boat. They head across the, the lake, across the sea. And then in verse 11 of chapter 8, it says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. This was an ominous sign when you read Matthew's account of that. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came and they were testing Jesus And they say, show us a sign. And he groans deeply. He sighs deeply. It's a really uh, powerful word. And we read what Edmund Hebert said about that word. It's basically this inward, really deep, upward groan of Jesus when he hears them say, show us a sign. Because Jesus knows they are going to be judged. No matter what sign I show them, they're not going to understand it. They're not going to understand it. They ask for a heavenly sign, and they're probably looking for thunder from heaven or but he'd done those before too he had performed signs showing his dominion over nature and in chapter 9 we'll see is the transfiguration there's another heavenly sign that only the a few of the disciples see but nevertheless he did perform heavenly signs and they they would never believe those either because their heart was dark and they were not going to be saved they would be judged so he sighed deeply In Matthew's account it says an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And that's going to hearken to what we're going to learn today. The sign of Jonah being three days in the whale and he comes to life. That's a sign that Jesus will raise after three days. And then he teaches them the lesson on uh, the bread and the leaven. We see how the, he's trying to teach them spiritual lessons about beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they say they, they, they're still thinking in terms of real bread and real leaven. And he has to tell them, no, I'm, I'm talking about the leaven like the Pharisees' legalism and the Sadducees' materialism and their hypocrisy and how they teach there's no, there's a mortal soul. And so the false teaching essentially is what he was referring to. And then the leaven of Herod is also mentioned in Matthew which refers to immorality. So beware of all these false teachings. You to follow my teaching. And then we finished last week with the real interesting miracle of healing the blind man. And it was sort of in two stages. And I concluded, and I think it fits the whole flow of these miracles, that it was a, um, a sign to the disciples that you're sort of like this blind man. You have sight at first, but ultimately you're going to have very clear sight in the in the end, when your, the Holy Spirit comes, they will, their vision will improve. So the point being, hit the the blind man's the first stage was temporary; his lack of clarity was only temporary. The disciples still have lack of clarity, but it's temporary. They're going to have much more understanding very soon. And so that was an image to the disciples. Okay, so today's lesson we will turn to in Mark. I'm going to read, I'll back up a little bit. I'll start with chapter 8, verse 22, and read through to chapter 9, verse 1. And this is just going to repeat the miracle of healing that blind man. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village... And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. By the way, we mentioned, I don't have to mention again, this is, remember, the doctrinal high point of this gospel is right here, where Peter is going to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Right in the middle of the book. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, "'Who do people say that I am?' They told him, saying, "'John the Baptist,' and others say, "'Elijah,' but others, one of the prophets.' And he continued by questioning them, "'But who do you say that I am?' Peter answered and said to him, "'You are the Christ.'" And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, openly, stating it very plainly. This is what's going to happen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, so let's just go back through it, and we'll go verse by verse. Any questions or thoughts on that before I teach anything? Well, I'll start then by rereading those first two verses of this section, and I'll start at verse 27 for this lesson in 28. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi on the way he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist or Elijah or the prophets. So the first thing to note is this is really the same answer that uh, we read in chapter 6 when Herod was, asking, was thinking about Jesus. And it's verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. People were saying, John the Baptist has risen. That's why he's doing these miracles. Others were saying Elijah, and others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So uh, the people could see <laughs> clearly that he was some sort of special person. They essentially thought he was a person like one of the prophets. Matthew's account says that they thought he was Jeremiah. Luke says he's one of the prophets who is risen. So they see he's a great man, but they don't see what Peter is going to acknowledge here in just a minute. The Messiah is much different than the prophet, much bigger, much greater. But even, So the point is none of them acknowledge that. None of the people really understand that he is the anointed one. He's the one prophesied in the Old Testament to come. they were hoping he would be some sort of messiah remember back when he fed the 5000 in John's account they were hoping for some king political victor they would have political victory over the romans but they didn't understand what he was really going what he really was the messiah none of them acknowledged that so in verse 29 he continued by questioning them Who do you say that I am? So this is directed at the apostles that are there. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. Okay, Peter, right? Good answer. Um, It's something to us that's clear. Every believer acknowledges Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Christ. So Peter has insight here, and that is a good answer. He gets like a star for that answer. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one. I, I see that right now. Uh, This is the whole purpose of Mark's gospel, the whole very first verse of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John says at the end of his gospel, that's why he wrote the whole book. These things have been written so that you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this is central to our belief, obviously. Mark starts out with it, John's gospel ends with it, and every page in between speaks of it. Remember, too, though, John the Baptist didn't understand it. In Matthew, he sends some of his disciples and says, ask him, is he the one, the anointed one, who is to come? And then Jesus replies, yes, tell him, I am the one who is to come. And In fact, I quickly want to flip there, flip to Matthew chapter 11. I want to just read that because it um, there's another section in there that is really poignant, I think. It's Matthew 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And then Jesus gives a, a sort of a long answer. You know, basically Tell John what you're seeing, all these miracles. And so the answer is, Yes, I'm the one. But verse 6 <laughs> is interesting. It says, uh, of Matthew eleven six, 6. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So this is leading into the lesson that Peter's going to learn and the apostles and the disciples are going to learn in a minute. Blessed are those who don't take offense at Christ. So keep that in mind. What, what offense would they take in a miracle worker? Well, the offense is obviously the cross, and uh, and we'll get to that. But blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So all this points to the fact that um, they didn't understand the Messiahship. And at this point, when Peter acknowledges you will be the Christ, it's clear that he doesn't get that the Christ is going to die. That whole concept is still so foreign to him. And we'll see later that Peter never really gets it, even beyond this. We'll talk about that. But it is just an indication that Peter and the apostles, no doubt, and everyone else did, could not conceive of what Jesus is going to say next. It's, it's unbelievable that the Messiah would be murdered. Okay, in verse 30, he warned them to tell no one about him. So we've gone through this before. What are the possible reasons that he's warning them? And we, we've talked about it. It just wasn't time. Clearly, Peter didn't have a clear picture of what the Messiah was. So that would be one reason to have him put a lid on it for a while because he's not going to give a full picture of the Messiah, so that's one reason. Um, Peter may have proclaimed, oh, the king is here and he's going to take over. (coughs) He would have raised false hopes, give people a false hope that the king is coming, but that wouldn't be accurate in the way that they would have understood it. So So at this point, he says don't tell anyone about him and then it says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So, Son of Man, by the way, it's the most common way that Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels. Uh, and it means that Well, it has a divine quality to it, and then a human quality to it, Son of Man. First time son of man is listed is mentioned in the Bible. Does anybody know where it is? Hmm? Nope. Close. That's in Daniel. It's in Daniel seven, and uh, this is Daniel's vision. And he explains his vision later on. But it's particularly Daniel seven thirteen. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So I'm not. Going to get into that difficult prophecy, but essentially, it, this was Daniel seeing Jesus, the Son of Man, coming uh, in victory over the world, essentially. So, this, this is what Jesus is referring to when he says Son of Man. He knows that they would have recognized the divinity of that phrase and what that meant. In Acts chapter 7, when uh, Stephen is dying, he's uh, being stoned to death. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So this is a, a reference to his divine quality, and then also it's a reference to his humanity, Son of Man, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, you see this concept of God being man. There's a phrase for this. I can't remember. It's the... Um... Anyway, there's a theological phrase that... that basically explains that Jesus is both God and man And Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 and 7 is key to that I'll read it it says talking about Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men kenosis is what it's called it's that word emptied so essentially you have the image here of Jesus is God he is God on earth yet he's in the flesh and when he emptied himself, he did it because of humility. His humility is what allowed him to empty himself and take on the form of a human being. Hebrews chapter two talks about that, too. He made us He had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to, the propiti- to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So son of God, Son of Man essentially refers to his divinity and also his humanity. And Jesus' uh, most common way of referring to himself. And the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. So he's talking about his crucifixion, and there's many texts in the Old Testament that also speak to that. Isaiah 53 is is one of the most commonly known ones, and it's very clear that the Messiah will will suffer. The suffering servant is described in Isaiah 53. In fact, let's go ahead and flip there. Just read a few verses. I'll pick up at verse 3. I won't read all of it. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So, I mean, clearly you can see this in the account of Mark, what we know about Jesus in his life. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. We will see his offspring, and he'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So, that clearly is speaking of Jesus, right? Isaiah 53, and that is what we see in Jesus' character in, in the Gospel of Mark as a suffering servant. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is what Jesus is telling Peter is going to happen to me. And he stated it plainly. So it seems like there was no doubt to the disciples that were hearing this what was going to happen. It wasn't hidden it was plain it was open they all heard it and so peter of course doesn't like that he can't get his mind around that whole idea at all and uh rebukes jesus he must have said something like no i mean think about it's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of peter but not that hard really because i mean he loved him and he hears he's going to die and he's thinking no, I, I don't worry, Kinda. Of, I will take care of it. I no, 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 we'll defend you. That's not going to happen. You are God. So so that was on the one hand his noble sentiment. On the other hand, Jesus knows really what's in his heart, which is what? You you're you're got your head on man's interests. All I've been teaching you, you're still not seeing God's interest. You've got your head around Man's interests. It's such a firm rebuke that he calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So that is pretty sharp, right? That is a really firm, clear, sharp rebuke. (coughs) Jesus lets him have it, really. And other people heard that too. So get behind me, Satan. And this is really almost an exact quote of Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Not exact, but similar. Uh, phraseology, is where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and uh, at the end of a temptation, Jesus says, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then also in Luke, when you read after the temptation in the wilderness with Satan and Jesus, Luke 4.13, it talks about Satan departing and uh, it says, until an opportune time. So that's like a haunting verse, right? So Satan comes, tempts Jesus. It doesn't work. He says, go, Satan, leave. And Satan leaves. But it says he's still lurking. He's waiting for an opportune time. And this may have been one of them where he sends Peter. and says, Peter, defend him. You know, tempt him a little bit. But he doesn't have to do this. You'll defend him, and it, he doesn't have to go to the cross because Satan must, be at this point, be getting very desperate, Right? He knows what's coming. The cross is going to be soon. His defeat is going to occur. And I think this is another one of his uh, temptations to the Lord. Yeah, that's in. I don't think it's in Mark. I think it's in. Someone help me. It's Luke or maybe John, actually. But, uh, did we read it? It's after this. I mean, in time. I don't know when it is, but I mean, we i know what it means. He says, "Satan." Uh, oh, I think it's earlier on. A, <laughs> maybe if, if someone has time, I, I would like. Uh, look at yeah, look it up because um, that is a poignant thing too. He says, "Satan," but that's the promise to Peter. Satan has asked me to sift you, and, and Jesus won't let that happen. <clears throat> Go ahead. Luke twenty-two, thirty-one. Maybe go ahead and can you read that for us, John? Do you mind? Oh, I got it. Luke 22, 31. 31. Well, let's go ahead and read that because that is a really nice promise to Peter too. Um, yeah, that, yes, I can't believe I, of course, because we're going to get to this section a little bit later. It's just before the garden, Right. So this is great to fit this in. Um, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And okay, this is so good. So Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. We're going to see before we finish today. Uh, Peter continues to fail over and over again, even after this. Even after this exact prayer. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he says, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And then the rooster. He says, but no, Peter, the rooster is going to crow three times and you'll deny me three times. No, I'm ready to go to the death. And we'll see how far Peter's sort of worldly motivation lasts. That's great. I see him, yeah, I think that is one way to look at him. I I think he's saved. I think he's saved. And I think he's like that blind man. He's got partial clarity. And he's gaining more clarity, more clarity. Ultimately, he's going to be able to defend Jesus and be strong in the faith at Pentecost, We'll get to that too, when the Holy Spirit finally comes and that's when his real lights are turned on and he has complete clarity of what's going on. So I see him as a saved person. I think in John chapter 1, 40, he says, follow me, and he follows him. That's his calling. That's when he's saved. Ultimately, those questions are always hard, right? It's like, when were you saved? It's like, well, the beginning of time when my name was written on the book, right? So it's always hard to know when, but yeah, I think he's saved person but nevertheless he's still working in the flesh and he can, his flesh continually rears its head example, um, that's right yeah but that's a great verse of sifting i've prayed for you that your faith may not fail so if jesus is praying that his faith won't fail uh that and that prayer will be answered right his faith won't fail ultimately Yes: Yes-hmm: like right Yes, I think it is exactly what it's teaching, and it's also teaching about sanctification. We're getting ahead of me, but yeah, I think it's also teaching about our sanctification. We sometimes think that when a switch gets turned on, it's all cruise from there on out. That's not what happened with Peter. That's not what happened with any of the disciples and I think 100% of you in this room would say that's not what's happened with me in my life because we continually fail. So the process of sanctification is one that exhibits God's patience, his love, our sin, our continual need for repentance, etc. Very good. Any other thoughts on that? So he states the matter plainly. Peter rebukes him. Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter. Um, You know, Peter doesn't see God's interests. He sees his own interests. I have my notes here. God's interests are spelled out pretty plainly in another section. I'll read it for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise, also partook of the same, that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So this is God's plan. It was for him to die to render the devil powerless so that he'll free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. <laughs> Another verse about the cross, because this, this is it, right? This is what Jesus is really teaching in as I read through this, yes, the, the Christological teaching, you are the Christ, that's the high point. But the teaching for us and to Peter is this next section, which is denying ourselves, understanding the cross and the power of the cross, and then the power to give us, to enable us to deny ourselves. You know, the cross is foolishness, right? It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'll skip down a few verses, 22 for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So that, that's it. That's what we preach. That's what Peter had to learn. You, you, me crucified is it. And at this point, Peter didn't understand that at all. We preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block to Gentiles' foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So that's the lesson Peter is starting to learn. Um, And Peter has to wake up pretty quick because not only is Jesus going to suffer, but he's going to suffer. And all his friends, his disciples are going to suffer and all of them are going to be martyred. So this is another example to follow after Christ. He suffered and died, so are you going to suffer and die, Peter. And they will wake up. Jesus will give them the ability to bear up under that. Momentary light affliction, which is what we have now, produces eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Okay, let's move on to this really significant section of Mark eight thirty four, through I'll read the whole thing again. You know, of course, well known verses to us describing the cost of discipleship. So let me just read those. He summoned the crowd. So after this, he he talks to the disciples and Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then now he's opening up to the whole crowd. He's now speaking to everybody that is nearby. He summoned the crowd with his with his disciples and said to them. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, uh, what's the cost to us? I mean, I I answered the question, not even, I mean, it's everything, right? Your cost is everything you have. If you wish to follow him, you've got to do these three things. Deny yourself. So, what does that mean about denying ourselves? I mean, I'm I'm open to just some examples. How, How do we practically deny ourselves in this day and time? What do we do? It's not just, um, it's not simple things, you know, like, uh, I don't know, give up foods or, I don't know, it's just not little things. It's, it's deny your whole self. And the word he uses here later about your life and your soul, this, you know, the soul, this is who you are. You're the essence of your mind, your heart, this person, your life, your soul. That is what has to follow after Christ. So we have to deny ourselves everything. Everything in our life is not ours. So if you were to ask yourself, is there something in my life, some habit I have or some, something I do or some thought that I have that I know is not godly? It is not what Jesus would want me to do. If he was with you 24-7, which he is, but if he was physically with you and he watched your life for a week, would he say, yes, you're denying yourself? Or would he say, you're not denying yourself? You are not. Your life is about the world. Your life is about other things. So it is a extremely challenging. I think this is the heart of being a Christian is we deny ourselves. Everything about our life and our mind and our thought is not ours. It's his. And He he strengthens that by the second thing, take up your cross. So... Do you know what that means? Anybody? Yes. <coughs> would the people hearing take up your cross know what that meant? I'll tell you what it meant. It meant, at that time, many people were being crucified by the Romans. And they would, they would make it public along the roads so that people would see, don't mess with Rome, or this is what's mm-hmm. going to happen to me. So, take up your cross. And so the people were crucified, they had to carry their own cross, so imagine, you're, what are you doing? You're walking to your death. You're taking up your cross. You're walking to your death. So it's a reminder, I don't have long to live. I'm a dead man. I take up my cross. So in the same way, he's telling his disciples, deny yourself, take up your cross, which means suffer if you have to. There's a part of you that's dead. You have a sentence of death on you, but Christ has the victory. So taking up your cross is an image of bearing shame, bearing suffering, For Christ it's not about our life being filled with even a career or all these things that I know we all think of what's my career what's my family life what's Thanksgiving vacation gonna be like all these are important but our minds should more and more be filled with the idea of uh, suffering shame for Christ if we need to work hard for Christ and give up our lives to serve him and then we follow him just like Peter and the disciples are gonna follow him we'll see very shortly so, I th- so the image is very powerful, and I think it's a challenge to us to um, ask ourselves, um, how do we deny ourselves? Are there things in my life that I, I need to deny? Is there something in my life that I want to save? That's another way to flip it. Is there something in our life that I want to save for myself? Just think it through today when you get home. Is there something that I'm trying to hold on to whether it's money or a house or a relationship or something. If you're trying to hold on to it in your own power, well, you're not going to be able to hold on to it because it's going to go away. Uh, And then the other question is, is there something in your life that's not completely devoted to Christ? Again, is there a habit we have, something that's not 100% His and devoted to Him? If so, we need to repent today and turn and follow Him. So, another question for us. How do, how do we do that? How do we, in our life, have the ability to do this hard thing? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Practically, how? Because we can't do it humanly, right? We just can't. We're human. We're weak. We're sinful. We're of the flesh. So, how do we practically do this in our life? Anybody? very good. And so Mhm. so it's So it's keeping your mind on other people on things above and uh, remembering the small things do add up. I think that's great practical advice. Yeah, keep your mind on the small things. Anything else? How do we practically deny ourselves? Petition the Lord first, prayer. You can't do it in your own power. Right. Approach God with humility and prayer and just acknowledge I can't do it. And so we have to pray. We have to commune with the Lord for him to help. He hears our prayers and he answers them. And if we ask anything in his name, he will hear it. So that's a prayer that's in his name, right? That's something that he would agree with. Help me to deny myself, I can't do it at my own strength. So a fervent prayer, absolutely. We have to pray more. What else? then it comes down to doing so Yeah. Follow me. Right. Sometimes it's as simple as that. You don't want to do Something. You can do it in your mind, but just following him is a physical act. Do what I say, do what I command. What else? I think another way to check ourselves, me personally, just when you think you're doing good denying yourself, just throw in the one word evangelism. Yep. Yes. Yes, that w- that is a great segue We'll get to that in just a minute, but yes, so evangelizing is difficult because it takes time, it takes effort, it takes mental energy there's some shame involved in it you you might look like a silly person out there talking about Jesus, but it's nothing that's not taking up a cross like they did like he tells you to do so yeah evangelism right we ought to all be challenged to evangelize more um, Anything else? I, I think of a real important verse in Hebrews 4. Um, I think it's 4. The, the, the uh, sword, the, the, sword the, the word of God is living and active. It's 4, right? Four. Yeah, thank you. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So if you study God's word, it is sharp like a sword, and what does it do? It pierces as far as the dividing the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we have to read and study God's Word. It is what helps us. If, you, if we're not studying it diligently, you know, at the conference last week, they, uh, we had a men's conference, and it was on um, discernment. And they had a panel of men up there, and one of the questions was really good. That one of the guys asked, I said, hey, tell us, what do you guys do for your routine daily to read the Bible? How much time are you spending in the Word? And it was a great question and one which a lot of us may not really want to accurately answer. So they all gave great answers. And, you know, and Jeff Horn was up there and Shane and uh, uh, Chris, is it Chris Pixley? And there's someone else, wasn't there? Anyway, but they all gave great answers, and the point was, they're in the Word. You you cannot, the Word of God won't affect us if we're spending three minutes a day reading it. It won't. We have to be committed to the Word of God because it's sharp and it's two-edged, and it is what is going to enable us to be able to deny ourselves and do the things that we cannot do in our flesh. So we have to be in the Word a lot. And if you say, how much? Well, the answer would be, more than you currently are. Right? I mean, that's, that's a universal answer for all of us. More than you're currently in it. You have to be in it more. It ought to be an absolute high point of our day. And if you don't have a time carved out each day, I don't want to be legalistic about it. <laughs> but you really do need, I think it's best, you have to carve out time every day and deliberately do it. It's interesting about a 2 sword because it cuts both ways. Yeah. And that's right. Yep. Okay. Anything else on that topic? I want to finish by going through Peter's life a little bit in the context of what he just learned and um, to to drive home this point of what he was just taught about denying himself and not understanding at first Jesus' death and putting his own self ahead of God's plan. Uh, By the way, this is the first time in Peter or, I mean, in Mark's gospel that you see Peter rising to the top, okay? You don't see, he's just one of the disciples before this, so this is the first time you see him as sort of the spokesman. Um, So, even though he acknowledges Jesus as Christ here, we know he still has a lot to learn, Um, and you would think after this rebuke, he would have some real serious insight, right? He was rebuked like this, called Satan, in front of Jesus. You'd think he, he got it. Um, but he didn't. And by the way, this isn't even the first time that we know he knew Jesus was a Christ because in John chapter 1, when Simon Andrew calls him, he said, Hey, Peter, come see the Messiah. So he, he, they already had been talking about that. So all along, Peter sort of knew it in his mind, but he didn't understand what it really meant. Um, and so Peter continued to remain worldly after this event because we know when Jesus is in the garden praying before he's going to be taken by the soldiers to the cross and they come to get him, what's Peter's reaction? He takes out his sword and he's going to try to cut a guy's head off. So there, he forgot. Jesus said, they're going to come take me to die. So he's still resisting it. He doesn't understand what's going on. Um, In John 13, I'll read this verse. Jesus says, talking to Peter, after Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, I'll go to the end of the earth. We already read that in Matthew. There's another same account in John. And Jesus answers, will you lay down your life? Truly, 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 I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So even after the rebuke, after the scene in the garden, after Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me, he says, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. What does Peter do? I'll read Mark's account in chapter 14. But again, this is after the people come to him and ask him. You know, the, the, the slave girl comes. Are you, are you with Jesus? Were you with Jesus? He's asked three different times. And this... Verse 70 of chapter 14, but again he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. And then, but he began to curse and swear, this is Peter, Jesus' follower began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark before the rooster crows, and he began to weep, okay? Okay? I'll read Luke's account because it's even harder to read. Uh, Peter says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking at Rooster crowed. the Lord turned and looked at Peter. (sighs) So, uh, powerful, right? Um, Powerful truth about Peter's humanity, his inability to see the spiritual things, that he denied the Lord over and over again even though he had this close intimate relationship to him. And it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. He is faithful. He is faithful to his people to the end, no matter how harsh you are to, to deny him, right? Um, okay. Ultimately, Peter gets it. And I want to read a few verses to end on a positive note. Uh, two, two verses. At the end of the Gospel of John, you know, Peter is restored famous verses i'll read 21 chapter 21 verse 17 Uh, this is another powerful verse (laughs) it's hard to read so this is where he says peter do you love me peter do you love me three times obviously echoing his denial three times must have been so humbling for peter to hear this he said the third time simon son of john do you love me peter was grieved because he said to him the third time do you love me And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Okay, great. Now, I keep reading. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk. Sorry. Wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you don't want to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. So, okay. Okay. There's a lesson for Peter, all right? this, this is what Jesus is talking about, deny yourself. And Peter, fortunately or unfortunately, both, you know, had a martyr's death. I'll finish with a, this time with a positive note, all right? It's Acts chapter 2. So this is where we know Peter really gets it. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 Pentecost. The flames of the tongue have come out and has spoken to all the people and it's this wonderful grand miracle. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But... God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So victory uh, at the cross. Peter knew it. The whole world now knows it. And so we can end on a positive note. And it's the spirit of God that was manifest there in Acts that is still in us that can help us you know, do these things that we can't do on our own. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. I think Peter's just a awesome example of how we can be sanctified. God's patient with us, just like He was, was with Peter. Any questions before we? He, I mean, basically telling this gospel to Mark, right. right. Yes. So, how hard is it for you to tell Mark that Jesus called me safe? Yeah. Very. Like yeah, that's right. So Peter had to tell Mark. What happened and this is what he remembered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. And it's like, no no no, I don't know, him, but he's like, he? <laughs> Yeah. mm-hmm very good thanks okay thank you appreciate it we'll see you next week